Good morning. Good to see you. I want you to know that this is the first time in 41 years, lift this up a little bit, that I have ever, actually, that I have ever at any time of my life preached in jeans. So, I, I, and I asked Chris, you know, what am I supposed to wear to preach? And he said, well, just, just look what, what Don and Andy and Ben and I wear and just do it. And I didn't say that. But I'll tell you what some good news is. Here's the good news. The good news is there's a light here that will help me to see a little better. Uh, here's the good news. Chris will be back in the pulpit next Sunday. <laughs> Woo! So happy for that. That's fantastic. And we look forward to that, whatever God's laying on his heart. Uh, that will be exciting to us. Uh, we're in a series called Scream, right? We're talking about fear primarily. You know, next week is Halloween, and so this kind of fits the, uh, the area here. And uh, we've had uh, Ben talk about fear, the fear of man brings a snare. That was Matthew 10. He talked about that. Then Don over here preached on uh, Hebrews, uh, what was that? 2, 14 and 15, the fear of death. And then Andy came in with a fear factor in, in, in Matthew 14, 22 following. So Chris says to me, you know, your assignment, Ralph, should you choose to accept it, is that the A-team or the Mission Impossible, is, is to preach on the fear of God. That's your assignment. So I, I looked it up. I started my study, and I found out that there are over 300 verses in the Bible that talk about the fear of God in a positive light. And I'm thinking, well, we have a few time constraints. I can't really do all those 300, so I cut it back. I decided I'd do only 275. Not really, but uh, a little different this week. I'm not doing a topical study you can do that. I had a pastor say to me the other day when I was with him, he said, you know, I got this program on my computer that will list every statement about the fear of God in the Bible. You want me to give it to you? Not the program, but, but the, the list. Well, I didn't take it. I'm not doing a topical study. You can do that. I want to approach the subject in, term, in terms of uh, just three narrative stories not going to fit your outline very well because I got, <laughs> I got a little different direction later in the week. But I want to use these three stories to help us drill down into the fear of God and apply it to our personal walk with him. So the way this all came about, I was at the Mount Penn Diner for breakfast with another pastor and his wife. And I said, by the way, in a couple of weeks, I got to preach on, on the fear of God. Do you guys have any thoughts you want to share with me? And the pastor said immediately, he said, Absolutely. The, the one I think about is Peter, who went fishing and didn't catch, they toiled all night, didn't catch anything at all. And he came back and he was so discouraged. And the Lord said, look, cast out your boat again. This time, throw the net over the right side of the boat instead of the left side of the boat. And the story is they caught so many fish, it nearly sank the boat. And what happened with Peter? Peter said, oh, God. I'm a sinful man. Please depart from me. 
the fear of God. And so I said, I have one. Peter's cockiness through, he said, he said real, real confidently, you know, Lord, though all forsake you, I will never forsake you. And Jesus said, Peter, before the cock crows three times, you will deny me twice. And all of a sudden, then the pastor's wife, Debbie, jumps up, and she comes over and she says, I got one. And she sets her phone down by me at the breakfast table, and she said, this is fantastic. And we're getting excited here in the diner, the Mount Penn Diner. And she shares with me this verse. Do you want to hear what it was? I'm not going to give it to you right now. I'm going to save it for the end of the sermon. It's that good, okay? So let me just take a quick uh, definition that might make it a bit fuller for us. The fear of God is a natural response of God's child, supposed to be natural, to all of God's attributes as declared in the Word of God. And what happens to us is that we are so humbled when we find ourselves in the presence of God. I feel, I don't know whether you feel, I'm sure you do, you feel that when we're singing. I told my small group the other night, I said, if you look over at me, you won't be able to see me. That's good because sometimes I stop singing. And the reason I stop singing is because I'm breaking up a little bit. And, and when that happens, you know, to you too probably when you're singing, it sounds like a machine gun, <laughs> you know, instead of actual sounds. But when God moves upon us, that's, that's fantastic. We're so humbled when we find ourselves in his presence whether it be kneeling before your bed, whether it be at the desk, at work, or at the office, maybe at church participating in worship or sitting under God's word or our private times with him in our walk. As we open the Bible privately, God speaks to us. We recognize his presence, his power, his purity, his holiness in the word of God. And in our experiences, there can only be one response, reverential awe of God. You know, it's something that is lost today, and I want to tell you, when that happens, when that happens in your life and my life, my uh, spiritual life grows by leaps and bounds. When that doesn't happen, it's so easy to move in the flesh, isn't it? When that happens, my spiritual life grows by leaps and bounds. That kind of catapults me into a new dimension of my walk with God. And we want that to happen because in this church, we're a vertical church. We want to think vertically. So we have 2 Corinthians 7, 1, which says this. Do we have that up on the screen? Yeah, there it is. There it, is. Uh, it says, since we have these promises, dearly beloved, let us do what? Cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, Perfecting holiness, how? How do you perfect holiness? In the fear of God. You know, that's a critical verse. The fear of God helps propel me forward in my life and walk spiritually. It's the key to living vertically. I haven't always realized that. Many or really maybe most of my church ministry experiences were horizontal, not vertical. Because in most churches, verticality will get you shot down. But that goes hand in hand with the fear of God. The fear of God is your friend. You know, you don't have to need, uh, 
you don't need to be fearful or feel like you're terrorized by God or you do something wrong, God might come by and zap you. Uh, uh, he died for you. If you're a believer, he loves you perfectly. Perfect love cast out fear. Romans 8, no judgment, no condemnation for you. So when the fear of God is manifested in your life, it helps you to perfect holiness. You want to keep his commandments and be obedient. You want to stay away from sin. You want to serve the Lord with all your heart. That's fearing God for you, my believing Christian friend. Now, there is a caveat to that, which I'm going to talk about in a little bit. But I want you to look at three narratives that will help us to kind of maybe drill down into this concept of the fear of God. The first story would have created a fear in me if I were there, and it would have given me what the kids call the evil jeebies, but it's really a pretty good Halloween theme. Here's a verse. I'll give you the verse. You tell me what book of the Bible it's from. You ready? Here's the verse. Mini, mini, tiku uparshin. Don. Don says Daniel. Wrong. No, I'm sorry. You're right, Don. <laughs> All right. Daniel 5 is the story of Belshazzar, and I want us to look at that. This actually came up at breakfast, and the more I thought about it, the more we need to think about it together. It's not an example of someone who feared God, but I want to connect it to Romans 3.18, which says there is no fear of God before their eyes. You know, that's the world we live in. I wish it weren't that way. Now, Belshazzar is the son of Nebuchadnezzar. We'll call him Nebi. Uh, and you remember that he made uh, an image of gold. Okay. Oh, I see that's up there. Good. He made an image of gold, and he said, everybody has to bow down before that. Whenever you hear the, the sound of the sack and the psalter and the, the harp and all that stuff, all those musical instruments, everybody in the kingdom must bow down to my image of gold. Remember that story? And if you don't, you're done. You're over. Your life is over. So we have that story where a couple guys come in, and they were tattletales, and they said, you know, Oh, king, we, we know what you've declared, and there are three guys that won't do it. Their name is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or often we say my shack, your shack, and a bungalow. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will not bow down. And, uh, you know, God is, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is extremely angry and says, throw them into the fiery furnace. You remember that story. And, uh, there, and, and, and let me just read that text there in Daniel 3, 16 to 18. <clears throat> Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this. He said, what's up? You guys aren't bowing down to my image. And this is what they said. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace or blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now, who has the fear of God there? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And as you know, the story goes on. He he got up and he went check out the, with them on the fiery furnace and he says, hey, there were three men thrown into the furnace, but there are four 
who are walking around in the furnace, and one is like unto the, I think he said, the sons of God. And they were delivered. Now, you would have thought that Nebi would have developed from that experience the fear of God, but he didn't. I mean, how do you explain that? I mean, if I had been involved in that, that certainly would have affected me. And so if we look at Daniel 4, 28 to 33, Daniel chapter 4, about verse 28 through 33. Actually, let's look at verse 28. All that happened, all this happened, Nebuchadnezzar the king, Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said this, Is this not the great Babylon, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power for the glory of my majesty? While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven, saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you, it's declared, sovereignty has been removed from you. And you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beast of the field, and you will be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whoever he wishes. Immediately, that happens. And later on, he came to his reason. And he said, but now, at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. And you go all the way down to the end of that, in verse 37, he says, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are true and his ways just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. Does it change your heart? There's conversion. Up to that point, Nebuchadnezzar was big. God was so small that he could make his own gods. Now, all of a sudden, God is big, and Nebuchadnezzar is small. But here's the problem. The reason I share that with you is because Belshazzar never got it from Daddy. I picked this story because this is a story about how a king learned to fear God but forgot to teach it to his son. The son was never taught the lesson. So if you look at Belshazzar's story in, in Daniel 5, 17 to 30, you should take a peek at that, please. 5, 17. This is, I have to read this to you, you know, because I think this is so critical. Uh, they wanted to have that, let's see, 517, where is that? Where is that in my Bible falling apart? Okay. When his heart was lifted up and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly, he was deposed from his royal throne, that's verse 20, 
and his glory was taken away from him. He was also driven away from mankind. His heart was made like that of beast, and his dwelling place was with the wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized that the Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind that he sets over it whomever he wishes. Now this is Daniel preaching a sermon to Belshazzar, the son of Nebuchadnezzar, who didn't get it but he's preaching this message. And yet you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this, but you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven, and you brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your nobles and your wives and your concubines uh, have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze and wood and stone, which, which do not see and hear or understand, but the God in whose hand are your life breath and your ways you have not glorified. And the hand was writing on the wall. Mini, mini, tiku, uparship. And that meant basically that his kingdom is done. And that his life is over. And that is the great commentary on Romans 3.18 there is no fear of God before their eyes. That's our society. That's our culture. That's modern man. I, I don't, people will say, I don't need God like, like a crutch, like you think you need him. I can stand on my own two feet. I'm the captain of my own fate, the master of my own destiny. And the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The testimony of Romans 1, 18 to 23. God gave them over to a darkened mind to all kinds of evil and idolatry, and they elevated themselves above God, and there was no fear of God before their eyes. God had enough of this pompous blowhard who had learned nothing from his dad, and so he knocks him off his pedestal because the kid never got it. No fear of God before his eyes. None. Nilch. Nada. It's a picture of our world today, Belshazzar. Well, you say, okay, I, I, I get this guy and his father who learned the lesson but didn't give it to his son. Is there something in the New Testament that you can show me that uh, will teach me that such you never ask? Uh, turn, please, to Acts 5 in the New Testament. Acts 5. The story of Ananias and Sapphira. Now we're going to come a little bit to the fear of God in the church. In Acts 5, there is a call to honesty, transparency, truth-telling, not lying among the people of God. Don't you tell me you fear God and then behave like this. But to be honest with you, to some degree, we've all done it. And that's why this is so convicting. And it really starts with Barnabas in verse 36, where he sold his property and gave the proceeds to the church, and he was honored and esteemed because of it. And the Bible says that this was an unbelievable church. Great fear came upon the church. If you look at uh, that section, uh, this is a picture of a great church, a church unified, a church uh, generous. They had complete unity. They had mind-blowing generosity. They were a supernatural community. 
However, not everybody was on board. Uh, I want you to look at the painful exception to the story. This is the caveat about which I spoke concerning the fear of God earlier. Barnabas sells his property, lays the proceeds at the apostles' feet. Honor was attributed to Barney for his generous donation to the community. Ananias and Sapphira decide, look, we'd like to have that same kind of uh, esteem and honor to us. So they contrive a plan to mislead the church. So they make a donation but claim that their donation is the full value of the property when it is not. And while they do that, they secretly keep a portion of the proceeds for themselves. Now, this was not mandatory. You didn't have to do this. This was a very gracious, generous, and compassionate church. Very clearly, the leadership didn't say, you have to do this if you want to join my church. Although, Chris, that might not be a bad idea. <laughs> no, they didn't, they didn't force this in any way. They weren't required. What's going on here that God doesn't like? They lied. They misrepresented their generosity. But you know what? There's something even more insidious than that. They intended to publicly portray a level of virtue and generosity to the church and its leaders that was totally disingenuous. The husband and the wife plan what I like to call a facade, facade of righteousness. At the same time, they were intentionally being deceptive, lacking in the fear of God, right? Where's the fear of God? Now, let's apply that and add that we lack the fear of God when we act like this. Does God care if we fib just a little bit to make ourselves look a bit more generous, a bit more holy than we actually are? Acts 5 says God cares. So D.D. enters a picture. You know what D.D. is? Not doctor of divinity. D.D. is divine discipline. Ananias drops dead right on the spot, not from natural but supernatural causes. By the way, this is, this is not prosperity gospel material. I'm, you've probably never heard uh, Joe Osteen preach on this one, right? By the way, this is a, just a, a side thought here. Benny Hinn, who was one of the prosperity gospel preachers, has now decried the prosperity gospel. And he says, the Holy Spirit is fed up with it, and I am never going to again ask you for $1,000. Well, we'll see how that works out. Uh, anyway, his brother Henry Hinn was in Canada when we were there, and my wife worked for Makita Tools of Canada, and that church was near Makita Tools, and that was also a prosperity gospel church. But here's what happened. They had a nephew by the name of Costi Hinn who wrote a book uh, obliterating the prosperity gospel. The scripture is so strong. And uh, he's spoken to John MacArthur's church sharing that information. This is not prosperity gospel material here. We would rather believe that once we are good Christian people, God won't care much if we play loose with our giving and our living. Take note. It's very important. God cares how we represent him to the world. 
God cares when we lie to the Holy Spirit and we, we fake our devotion to him. Three hours later, the wife comes in. She's asked the same question. She gives the same story. She drops over dead. Now, I can't say for sure, but maybe God was making a clear statement to the early church before things got completely out of hand. Aren't you glad that doesn't happen to us today because we'd be in a lot of deep doo-doo. I mean, it was heard loud and clear. And verse 5 and verse 11 says, And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. That's the fear of God, folks, in the presence of divine discipline. And it's a valid fear in this context. And you know what it does? It causes us to examine ourselves, to look inside. We need to guard carefully what comes out of our mouth. We need to take stock of our image management program. And this passage tells me that we have to be very careful that we don't pretend or present ourselves as more devoted, more spiritual, more compassionate than we really are. So here's a simple question. Are you intentionally trying to sell the image to the world or to your fellow Christians that you are more devoted than you actually are? Uh, God says you need to repent. You, you need to deal with dishonesty. You need to ask God to remove that from our lives. And then we walk in the fear of God. It's truth, no fakery. It's honesty, no dishonesty. Reverential, all of God does not allow for that. Now, so you feel a little better or worse, I'm not sure which, I'll have to confess to you that I've done it. And hadn't really thought about it until I'm studying Acts chapter 5 and I'm getting on a conviction about something. For example, I told probably, I don't know how many, maybe six, seven, or eight of you something like that about being the founding pastor of the largest church in the state of Pennsylvania. You didn't ask me about that. I volunteered it. I should not have done that. Honestly, I didn't think about it till I'm working through Acts 5 and conviction came to my heart and the tears came because God brought my motive to the front. I didn't even think about my motive before. I think that I wanted you to think more highly of me and I think I wanted you to know that I know something about church planning. I think I was doing a little image management program I wanted you to think I'm a good church planner. How come I never shared with you any of my churches that tanked and went south? All pastors have those. My motivation after analysis, I'll be honest with you, was to appear special, gifted, experienced, able to do stuff. And, and dear church, please forgive me. And dear Lord, help me to keep my mouth shut. It was a wrong motivation. The fear of God says, don't ever try to make yourself look better than you really are. Honestly, you know, you might listen to this and you might think, well, this is a small thing. But as I thought about it, I wept. Now, had you asked me about it and I shared that with you, that would have been fine. 
You see how you get smarter by studying the Word of God? And uh, a couple of weeks ago, I think it was two Saturdays ago, we were running a 5K race, my wife and I. Well, we weren't running too much. Uh, 3.01 miles. And I think with a whole bunch of other realtors, and there were two women from my office that were walking or running with me, and Kim was behind us, and, and one of them said, all right, look up ahead, guys. When we come, you see the curve in the road ahead, the curve in the trail ahead. When we come to that trail, that curve in the trail, I want us to start running. And I asked the obvious question, why? <laughs> well, she said, basically... If we do that at that curve in the road, we'll be able to see the finish line, and they'll be able to see us, and they will think that we ran the whole way. <laughs> so I said, let me uh, ask this question. You mean you want the people at the finish, at the end, to think that we actually ran this 5K when we did a lot of walking? And she said, yes. I said, thank you for the sermon illustration I got to preach in two weeks. <laughs> you just gave me. See, we want to appear that we're something we aren't. And to do that, we might lie. We might be careless with the truth. We might be dishonest. Acts 5 reminds me that a good, healthy dose of the fear of God protects me in that area and keep things in check. God doesn't want me misrepresenting him to the world. And great fear came upon the whole church the fear of God. What really matters, folks, is what God thinks of you. What really matters is what God thinks of us rather than what other people think of us. Let's be honest. Let's covenant to ruthlessly eradicate dishonesty from our lives and from our hearts. The fear of God prompts me to walk in honesty, in truthfulness, in obedience, and if I'm not careful, I fall under divine discipline. God doesn't strike us down dead today. That's not happening so much, but he has ways of getting our attention, doesn't he? Last one. Turn to Isaiah 6 in your Bibles. Or your phones. Isaiah 6, 1 to 4. We're going to put that up on the screen. And I'm going to look at that on the screen here and read it. Isaiah was uh, a fantastic king. He was a good king, followed by Ahaz, a bad king. But uh, things are pretty bad in the kingdom. And uh, God is looking for a man. God wants to reach through to the people. In fact, I notice in Isaiah, let me just get something here for you. I noticed in Isaiah at the end of the fifth chapter before this happens, things are really, really in bad shape. It says, they've rejected the law of the Lord of hosts. They despise the word of the Holy One of Israel. On this account, the anger of the Lord has burned against his people. He stretched out his hand against them. And the mountains quaked and their corpses lay like refuse in the middle of the streets. But listen to this. For all this, his anger is not spent but his hand is still stretched out. And that's why you have the calling of God upon Isaiah in chapter 6. So let's look at this. Here's what it says. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. 
and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above and stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. Let me ask you this question. Was Isaiah terrorized in total fear? He was not. Rather, he saw himself as undone. He's filled with the sense of his own condition. That's what, that's what being in God's presence will do for you. That's why we're called vertical. And I like to call this conviction by contrast. In other words, when you're in the presence of God, you see how great he is and how small you are. In the presence of pure holiness and purity and perfection and beauty, all of a sudden he realized how impure man he was. And so in verses 4 and 5, he says, woe is me. I'm undone. I'm unclean. I'm a man of unclean lips. I, I, I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Why? For mine eyes have seen the host, the Lord of hosts. He saw the vision. Conviction by contrast. The fear of God in my walk is a recognition of how undone I am in the manifest presence of God. And if I'm not coming into God's presence, I'll miss this. I'll just be churchy. Consistent exposure to God's presence prompts me because of the contrast of greatness to smallness to move forward in my holiness. But what happens next is exciting because... The seraphim comes, and there's cleansing by coals. You know, conviction by contrast, cleansing by coals. I'm going to run out of seas. The seraphim flew over and touched his lips, and that's in verses 6 and 7. You're clean. Your sin's forgiven. And then there's a calling by God. Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Did you notice that? Who will go for us? the Trinity. And he says, here am I. Send me, Lord. Out of that comes a commitment by Isaiah. Send me. And then there is the conversation where God says, I'm not only sending you, I'm going to tell you what to say. Say this to this people. And so the rest of chapter 6 is what he's supposed to say. Now, look at the result of the vision of the Lord to Isaiah at the death of Uzziah, and note its progress. He wasn't terrorized by God, but it was a holy fear of God, a reverential fear, reverential awe. He fell under conviction by the contrast of God's purity. He confessed his undoneness, his uncleanness. Out of that confession came cleansing by the seraphim. Subsequently, the call of God comes upon him, resulting in the commitment by Isaiah. And finally, the conversation. This is what I want you to say when you go. You're now my spokesman. All right. I need to live in the light of the fear of God. You know why? Because I've got some dirty lips. 
I've got some uncleanness. I've got some undoneness. I often have maybe a lack of clarity, maybe a lack of obedience, maybe even a lack of commitment, a lack of confession. But I want to tell you, when I find myself in the presence of God with a healthy biblical fear of God, there is some work done in my life in terms of transformation, and that's what I long for. And I hope you do as well. That's why we perfect holiness in the fear of God, in his presence. Ministered to by his glory, where he helps us see our lack and realize how needy we really are. So when we see God, we see our sin. We see our failure. The contrast is convicting. Those three narrative stories on, and God's word help me to drill down to realize how much I really need to be in the manifest presence of God and see his glory, even his glory in the church. To him be glory in the church. In his presence and in reverential awe, I'm changed, and the Bible says I'm changed from glory to glory, and I need that in order to perfect holiness and the fear of God. But let me just wrap it up by saying Nebi... Nebuchadnezzar didn't have a fear of God. He thought he ran the universe, but God has to humble him. Till he eventually found the fear of God, he humbled himself before, our God, before God, and now he says, now I know, I finally know, I've come to my senses that the Most High God rules in the universe. But he didn't teach Belshazzar, his son. There was no fear of God before his eyes, and so the handwriting is on the wall, uh, your kingdom is done. You are dead. Ananias and Sapphira, I'm sure they knew better. But they lied and they connived with a view of presenting themselves to the church as more generous and more noble so they could be honored and highly esteemed, just like Barney. It cost them dearly. It cost them their lives. And then we have Isaiah. God took the initiative as he was looking for a man, a prophet, who could speak his words to the people in Isaiah in the fear of God, the reverential awe of God, the holiness of God, in humility and confession, he was convicted, he was cleansed, he was called, he was committed to go and speak as God's spoke person. Those are some of the narratives that unveil a perspective on the fear of God. I, I'm going to end with the, uh, hi gang, going to end with a positive note that the pastor's wife who jumped up and said, I got this verse. I love this verse. It's in uh, Malachi, not Malachi. Malachi 3, 16 and 17 and 4, 2. And this is what it says. Then those who fear the Lord spoke to one another. Those who fear the Lord spoke to one another. Isn't that beautiful? That's, we're speaking to one another about what his power and present beauty means to us. And the Lord gave attention and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and esteem his name. You got that? They put the two together. Fear the Lord and esteem his name. That's part of the fear thing. And they will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on that day when I prepare my own possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son, <clears throat> who serves him, 
But listen, 4.2, but for those of you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. Wow. The Book of Remembrance. We talk to one another about the fear of the Lord. We experience it. We display it in our lives and walk. Powerful, positive note for those who embrace in their hearts the fear of God. Walk in his ways in honesty and truth and obedience and humility and submission. Let's pray. People, as we wrap this up, uh, we perfect holiness in the fear of God. Until you get a glimpse of, of how great is your God, you're just going to continue to deal with your ego, your narcissism. To perfect holiness in the fear of God, you have to get your eyes on God and off yourself. When that happens, and it should happen repeatedly and often on occasion, you are finding your pride driven out. Humility built into your walk. Now, we know that can happen in church. That's why we speak of verticality. We wait for it. We look for it. We pray for it. We expect it. The manifest presence of God, glory, transcendence. Now, with a mindset of the fear of God, it can happen in church while we're singing. It could happen out in nature when you're experiencing the grandeur of creation, when Don's on top of the mountain. It could happen when I'm studying the Word of God, I get convicted about my own sin and undoneness. Sometimes when I see God heal someone, and I've seen that, or bring someone to himself, my, my thanksgiving is intensified by, by how great is our God. Sometimes when I see a, a reconciliation take place in a marriage or even a church family, it breaks me up. Sometimes in our small group, when the truth hits home so hard to our people in a new way and God speaks to us. The fear of God, reverential all before him. That Malachi passage says a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and esteem his name. So I want you to take just a moment right now and talk to him about your own esteem of his name Maybe some confession you need to make about your sin or the way that you've represented him to the world. What creates a sense of worship and all in you when it comes to God? Take a moment, you pray, and then I'll close. Father, I pray that you would make these truths real to us, that you would manifest your presence and your glory in the church and in your people. And I pray that we might esteem you with all of our hearts, that we might perfect holiness in the fear of God. In our failure, help us to deal with a departure from that reverential fear of God that's so vital for what you want to do in us. I just commit that to you, to your glory, and in your name. 
In Jesus' name.